guest is Sharon Leahy Lynn, public health expert, former Maine CDC director and whistleblower, mother, and businesswoman extraordinaire. I spoke to Sharon Leahy Lynn from her home in Worcester, Massachusetts on May 1st, 2020. Welcome, Sharon Leahy Lind. Hello, Cynthia. How are you? Well, I'm well, and I'm extremely pleased to be talking with you because about five years ago, you were given a death sentence, uh, a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, and we're told you had six months to live, and yet here you are. How, here I am. How are you living with pancreatic cancer and the coronavirus situation? Well, you know, I think quite honestly, uh, you know, COVID-19 has certainly thrown a curveball um, to anyone living with cancer or any under um, underlying chronic condition. But I think, you know, if you said prior to COVID-19, you know, living with cancer, I, I think it really is a, a new normal for cancer patients. You know, because of the advancements in treatment, um, people are living with cancer. They're living longer. Um, pancreatic cancer, usually not so much. So I, I'm definitely an outlier in that regard. Um, and for the most part, you know what? I don't think of myself as living with cancer. I really don't think about cancer or being sick very often. You've completely reinvented yourself, it seems, uh, from my perch um, since the the diagnosis. You're now in Massachusetts. You've um, remodeled, refurbished a beautiful home. You're working as a public health expert again. Um, What what do you tell people um, about just Moving forward after a shock, like losing a job, moving, getting a a diagnosis, what's that taught you about life and perseverance? Well, you know, I think it's, you know, something that we're going to hear a lot more about um, after COVID-19 is about resilience, you know, and, you know, there's a lot of work going on actually uh, one of my main peeps and a, and a close friend, one of my intellectual muses, contacted me a few days ago, and she had just taken part in a, in a webinar on trauma and resilience that came out of Yale, I believe, the psychiatry department. She's actually going to get the slides and send them to me. So, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in that particular topic because you know when you think about it you know and and I've thought a lot about this about resilience and you know how some people can face things and and carry on and other people don't do so well and um, you know I, I, I have to question and wonder if people that maybe life hasn't been that easy or they've overcome maybe adversities in their past um, if they don't develop a different set of muscles, um, then maybe other people who've sort of just kind of glided through life without any major upsets until suddenly, you know, they're faced with a, a life-altering situation. So I question that. I, I wonder if people who have always been the masters of their destiny um, 
that they are not going to do so well with this pandemic and COVID-19. But yet others who, you know, sort of dug themselves out of black holes, sort of scrambled through life, um, you know, did what they needed to do, never really felt in control of their life or situation, that they're probably going to be okay. You know, and that's just my, you know, no data to back it up, my just quick thoughts um, that I've been thinking recently, actually, in the last couple of days. Well, tell me a little bit about some of the struggles in your life that you've overcome that may have built up your unbelievable resilience. Well, you know about some of them. (laughs) I mean, I think... (laughs) For me, I think being a single parent, that was was really challenging. You know, I mean, I was a high school dropout. You know, I had two children by the time I was 19 years old. Um, You know, it's things like that that you have to overcome in life. Now, I think at some point I could have decided that that's the way it was going to be. Um, I could have stayed, you know, as a recipient of TANF or AFDC, as it was called at the time. You know, I could have remained on Medicaid and food stamps. I I could have said, this is my lot in life. You know, this is, you know, the outcome based on the decisions I've made. Um, But for whatever reason, uh, I decided that I was not accepting it. And, and, you know, it's funny because I say that. But what I found to be my greatest asset in my cancer journey is acceptance and accepting things and realizing that in life, it's it's really not what about what happens to you, because a lot of awful things happen to really wonderful people. Um, it's about how you respond, you know, and, and what next steps you take. Um, what decisions you make in response to these things that happen to you. So I think probably in my younger years, I was extremely stubborn and tenacious and decided that I was not accepting poverty. I was not accepting being an uneducated person and that I wanted more out of life. And, you know, I'd like to say, I'd like to be really noble here and say, I did it for my children and for my next for the next generation to improve their you know their lives and the quality of their lives but really at the time i did it for me when i look back on it it may have been very selfish and self-serving in in a multitude of ways um because my kids grew up with a mother who worked and went to school full-time um you know through the majority of, of their formative years where, you know, I had to put myself, I mean, I, I was a high school dropout. So I went back to school at, I think I was 30, 30 years old, and, you know, put myself through undergraduate and worked. And then from there, you know, had some wonderful mentors and supports and said, you know, you're too smart to stop here, keep going. You know, so, and that was an eye-opener, too, and I was like, wow, I'm smart. <laughs> you know? So, I mean, it was just, it was sort of like the stars aligned. I, I realize now that I did what I was meant to do, and, and you know, I'm, I'm still working on becoming who I'm supposed to be and, and searching for my better self and, and all of those lofty ideas that I think a lot of us are, are, are thinking about either at this stage in life or, or during a situation like this pandemic. Now, you 
currently live in Massachusetts and work at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, I believe, doing work with the State Department of Mental Health. But yes, you, I do. But you had um, pretty deep roots in Maine for, for many, many years. And I'm wondering, could you just, what's your reaction to the response to the pandemic um, by Maine and Massachusetts? Do you think the government is responding in a way that is um, adequate? Well, you know, it's really interesting because I consider myself, you know, emotionally, psychologically, and uh, not physically, um, uh, that I'm a dual citizen in many ways because I have two daughters and two son-in-laws and two grandchildren that live in Western Maine. So, you know, my and my professional becoming, um, the opportunities I had to really develop as a professional person in the policy arena happened for me in Maine. And I'll be forever grateful for that. So I think, you know, I watched Dr. Shaw and Governor Mills, you know, during every press briefing. I watched Governor Baker down here um, and his team. And, you know, it's um, I'm just quite honestly, I'm just incredibly impressed with both. Uh, Governor Baker is an excellent governor. Um, You know, he's he's really led this directly without waffling uh calling upon the experts and the resources that his state offers which are far greater than what maine has to draw upon um with that massachusetts is experiencing this pandemic and death and illness at a much higher rate than maine is experiencing and mainly because of population density so um you know and and a lot more other factors but i think that's the big one there in in maine i think that you know i I, i'm so grateful that governor mills is leading the state in this and and that she assembled a team of unbelievably qualified experts before this thing hit um and i think we all know about dr shaw I mean, I was <laughs> I was one of the I think when I joined the fan Facebook fan club of Dr. Shaw, there were 100 members. And I now, now I think we're over 27,000. <laughs> That's unbelievable. So, I mean, you know, Maine has got this not only this highly qualified and compassionate physician, they have a, a national infectious disease or an international infectious disease expert at the helm. Um, so Maine has really positioned itself well and credit to Dr. Mills and Commissioner Lambrew because, you know, they brought Dr. Shaw on board and had a little bit of time to sort of try to rebuild the public health system that was virtually decimated in the last gubernatorial administration. Do you think there's going to be a renewed focus on public health and, and providing resources to public health programs post-COVID-19? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I have to tell you, I mean, and I think you might know this, I was the vaccine coordinator for Southern Maine during H1N1 um, and worked very closely with Dr. Mills and leadership on, you know, the building of the public health infrastructure. And one of the, the really difficult challenges that I think every public health leaders had across the country and and in particular in Maine, um, you know, for during that building process was really explaining what public health is. And when public health is working, you don't see it. 
you know, we had all kinds of outbreaks and challenges and difficult situations that emerged, you know, during my tenure at Maine CDC, but the public didn't often know about it or they were like little blips in the media screen. Um, but all of this infectious disease investigation and contact tracing and, um, you know, staying on top of cutting research, that's something that occurred regularly um, when Dr. Mills was leading the main CDC and now is continuing under Dr. Shaw. It's sort of revamped itself and renewed itself. And yes, people are going to pay closer attention to public health. They really understand and, and they're hungry for learning about it. People really want to learn how to protect themselves. They really want to learn what they can do um, around public health prevention and keeping themselves and their families safe. What do you worry about? Me? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You know, and unfortunately, I tend to get a bit extreme in my research. So, you know, actually, when I... Was when I when I came out of cancer surgery, my surgeon, who was just an incredible human being, he said, "Sharon, would you please stop watching the news and would you please stop worrying about the problems of the world? They're not yours to solve." <laughs> and you know, so that we know that didn't what, happen. What we know that didn't happen. <laughs> well, no, but you know what I look at now is I, I, there's real policy questions that come up, and you know they say. We are not going back to normal. The world is world as we know it has changed significantly after this. And I, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, how we how we educate our children in public systems and, you know, our colleges and, you know, what does this mean for the workplace and how are we going to reshuffle and reorganize and what new professions are going to emerge from this and, you know, what silver linings are we going to discover as a people, as a culture, as human beings? Um, You know, I, I, I think in every, I can't help but think this week, about the greatest generation, you know, and there was so much said about the folks that made it through the depression and the world wars and, you know, the, the impact that had on who they were and and their belief system. And I I think, you know, we're going to sort of reevaluate, you know, where we've been headed and, and really where we as a people want to go. Um, I'm concerned about our safety net systems. I think they're going to see large numbers coming on board, especially around Medicaid, around SNAP and food stamps. Um, you know, I, I'm worried about people who whose states are opening up right now, and they're told that since your employer can open up, you no longer qualify for unemployment. And but they're afraid to go to work. What does that mean? There's all these lawsuits that are emerging and and all of these big questions. So I think we're going to go through a tumultuous time before we really sort it out and and redirect ourselves to where we want to go. Your track record of resilience and achievement is just phenomenal. And people who know you um, really admire you and I just, what is your advice for people at this time who are just so afraid? They're just so afraid. What do you, what do you tell those people? Well, you know, I think the difficulties that I faced in my life, you know, those difficulties are the bad things that happened to me. And there were lots of them. Um, They encouraged me and gave me opportunities And the opportunities they gave me was a chance to redefine myself, 
you know, and, and at some point, I'm not sure when it clicked that, you know, and I think pretty much having to give up my career in Maine, I grieved that. I loved my work. I still grieve it with my my intellectual support group from Maine when we talk about the opportunity that we had to do this amazing work with these extremely brilliant people at the Maine CDC at the time and how, you know, you never can replicate that. If you have those employment experiences once in your lifetime, treasure them because they're not likely to repeat themselves. But to go back to what I was saying is, is I was given opportunities because things were so bad. It was either you go down or you go up. And I just, you know, I decided I was going to reinvent myself. And, and so leaving that position, you know, I spent time in the private sector. I renovated a lot of real estate. I did a lot of interesting things. But what I missed most was my professional role. I love the policy arena. I love public systems. I love improvement in public services. I have a strong belief in leveling the playing field and, and health equity and you know, really believing that we can do better and be better. So that led me to one day, only job I applied for. I saw uh, a position on Indeed with the uh, public medical school here in Massachusetts, and it was part-time, which was ideal, and I, and it wasn't a benefited position because I still had this moral part of me that it's like, I, I'm sick. I can't go on someone's benefit system. It would be dishonest. And I don't know if that's my Catholic upbringing or whatever it is, but I couldn't do it. It's like I couldn't be dishonest and not and apply for a position with benefits where I'm sick and I'm, I'm a high-cost user, potentially. So I applied for the job, went through all of it, didn't tell them I was sick, and um, got the job. And, and I am working with, again, a group of brilliant people who I'm just amazed by, and I'm learning every day. And the reality is when COVID-19 hit, it alleviated a, a tremendous amount of anxiety for me because I felt like I was keeping a secret from them by not telling them about my illness. So when this happened, I had to tell them because I can't be out. I had to self-isolate. I've been, this is, I think I'm going in my eighth week of being completely isolated. I mean, no contact, no one in my house, all of that. Um, and I had to tell them and I said, you know, if you let me go, I'm, I'm totally fine with that. You know, I really, I'll be okay. And they're like, you know, I said, I can't go out into the field and do these trainings. I can't go out and facilitate meetings. And they're like, so what? You know, you bring other skills that we can utilize and, and we're keeping you. So, you know, here I am. <laughs> well, Sharon Leahy Lynn, thank you so much for being my guest. And thank you, Cynthia. It's great talking to you. And thank you also for your service to our community and to the world at large. <laughs> Thanks. You have a great day. You too. Take care. Bye.